I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In January 2017, the Economist Intelligence Unit published its annual 2016 Democracy Index. The report sorted the countries into four categories, full democracy, flawed democracy, hybrid regime, and authoritarian regime. Americans had previously been part of the 9% of people in the world governed by a full democracy. They are now part of the near 45% who live in a flawed democracy. Among several factors, part of the EIU's downgrade was due to the low levels of political participation. In a way, this is not surprising. Americans have a declining sense of trust in government institutions, in politicians and political parties. There are countless angles from which this problem could be approached, but some of us at Agora surmised that an effective and direct way might be by addressing the very problems that lay right at the core of representative democracy, voting and the electoral process. And for this sort of analysis, the United States is a slow-moving target. To outsiders, many of the American systems and practices do not make sense, and even to the most optimistic insider, it's at best idiosyncratic, while to the less fortunate, it's often a confusing maze of exploitation, frustration, disenfranchisement, and ultimate futility. The panel today is not gathered to push a partisan agenda. Some are Americans, others not. Some are liberal, some are conservatives, but all have a vested interest in the United States, the most powerful and influential nation in the world today, remaining steadfast in its adherence to basic democratic principles, and have elections that are free and fair, not just because their government manipulation or physical intimidation are absent, but because rationality and justice are present. So people won't just have to believe in the final tally, but can have faith in the results. Well, that is a confident statement. (laughs) <laughs> well that's an aspiration yes that is that is the hope that we would get to someday so joining me today from all over the world we have our panelists providing an international perspective is dominic perry host of the history of egypt podcast hello we also have royfield brown creator of many podcasts and three since we started talking <laughs> hello the Americans on the line today include Eric Fogg uh, from the Reconsider podcast. America. We also have Tom Daly, who was supposed to moderate today, but who has a bad case of laryngitis. I'm trying to hang tough, though. 
And then there's myself, Benjamin Jacobs, host of the Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation podcast. So, to get us started, I think given recent events, it makes sense that we start today with a discussion of the Electoral College. Eric, uh, in your show, you and Xander recently covered the Electoral College. That so we did. maybe you can get us started and tell us, um, where is the Electoral College? How do I enroll? And will I qualify for student aid? <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, Ben, you are not eligible for student aid in the uh. Electoral College. And uh, the way to enroll in the Electoral College is to be one of... 538 very well-connected party insiders, uh, typically operating out of the party mechanisms of each state. Now, for those of you who are not in the United States, you've probably heard of the Electoral College, but you find it very odd. For those of you in the United States, you've probably heard of it, but you find it very odd. And it's likely that very few people really understand where it came from. Um, it is often surmised, and I don't actually know where this myth came from, that the Electoral College which was originally created because it took a long time for horses and buggies to carry votes to places. So they said, we'll just send people ahead with some votes from the state generally, and, and they'll just figure it out. Um, the travel time actually had absolutely nothing to do with this. It turns out people had uh, you know, gathered votes in the past without having to do this. Um, travel time wasn't the driving factor. What was the driving factor was the vision of the founding fathers for a federal republic as opposed to a direct democracy. So what, it does, what does this mean? The, <clears throat> the founding fathers were very aware that they had the option to have a national majority vote, and they decided specifically not to. The reason they decided not to was actually they didn't want the general will of the people at a given moment or the general passion and persuasion and opinion of the people at a given moment to select a president that was not fit for office. Specifically, what they wanted was for each state, and remember, in particular, this was a federal republic at the time, uh, much more of a state's rightsy kind of place. It was almost a union of sovereign states. Um, they wanted the people of each of those states to make their wills generally known and to give a vision to electors from each state. Now, of course, the electors uh, would be the number of electors from each state would be determined generally by the size of the state. And they said, you know, a good number is the total number of Congress people, which is pretty proportional, plus the two senators to make sure the little guys don't get totally hosed. Um, and all those electors would get so, together. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So this was a balancing act between the large states and the small states to a certain extent. Yes, exactly. So it was, uh, this was an extension of the entire constitutional negotiating process by which many of the small states, namely those who were not Virginia and New York, said, hey, if we're going to be part of this, we need a slightly bigger than proportional voice. Otherwise, Virginia and New York are going to totally swamp us, which is why they got two senators each and why they got disproportionately more electors. That's the Connecticut Compromise. Exactly. The last thing I'll say on it for now is that the purpose of the electors was in fact for those electors, now 538, but used to be much fewer, to use their judgment. Mm -hmm. These electors sent by the people of each state would actually have full rights to be able to select whomever they wanted, regardless of who was originally chosen as favorable by that state or by any state. So, long story short, the Electoral College actually has the right, even today, to completely ignore 
the people that got votes in the nationwide popular election. Uh, they could, in fact, choose anyone. So if those of you guys who were paying attention to the Hamilton electors movement in the November and December of 2016, these guys actually had the option to vote for anyone. And a few electors did decide to vote for people such as Kasich, and I believe a, one of the leaders of the Dakota Access Pipeline protest movement. Um, but it turns out that most people ended up voting for who they were pledged to. There's a lot of reasons for this, but the original idea was that they could actually decide to vote for whomever they wanted. And for historical reasons, largely due to party pressure, they have, in every single case, as a body, ended up voting for the person who got the most electors pledged during the popular vote. And if I could jump in here, um, I had picked out uh, some language that Hamilton wrote in Federalist 68 um, that I will ask uh, Mr. Ben Jacobs to read. Certainly. <clears throat> it was desirable that the sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust was to be con confided. This end will be answered by committing the right of making it, not to any pre-established body, but to men chosen by the people for the special purpose, and at the particular conjuncture. It was equally desirable that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the situation and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation, and to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice. A small number of persons, selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass, will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such a complicated investigation. The process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union, or of so considerable a portion of it as would be necessary to make him a successful candidate for the distinguished office of the President of the United States. Hamilton, Federalist 68. This isn't to say that the, the process as we have it today is what it was established as, you know, in the original Constitution, though. As, as Eric just sort of alluded to, um, Technically, according to the Constitution, the electors are supposed to be able to pick whoever they want, um, and that was the original design as a sort of a anti-democratic safety valve, because there's this tension between the tyranny of the majority and, um, and democratic principles within the Constitution itself. But then there's also the, the kerfuffle that led to the passage of the Twelfth Amendment, where... <clears throat> so the Twelfth Amendment was uh, a result of the election of 1800... Uh, by which um, there was no distinction at the time made between elector, electoral votes for president and vice president. So what happened is Jefferson and the Republican vice presidential candidate Aaron Burr both received the same number of electoral votes, and everyone thought that Burr would just step back. However, he didn't. And then the Federalists got involved to sort of stall the election, when it got kicked over to the House of Representatives, um, and it took 36 ballots in order for uh, that to work out in the House. So immediately everyone was like, all right, we need to fix this. 
um, and then the Twelfth Amendment was passed. Um, and basically, what that did is it restructured it so each elector will still cast two votes. One will have to be for a president, and one will have to be for a vice president. And it'll be clearly defined. That's the major change of the Twelfth Amendment. So, nonetheless, there have been a couple instances where there were still problems. Uh, and I, I'm going to run through them. Uh, in, in 1824, Andrew Jackson won a plurality of popular and electoral votes, but in the House of Reps, lost to John Quincy Adams. In 1876, Democratic candidate Sam Tilden won the majority of the popular vote in the United States, but because 20 electoral votes from four states were claimed by both parties due to the complications of the Reconstruction period, uh, party bosses ended up hashing out a backroom deal, grandiosely referred to as the Compromise of 1877, which awarded all 20 of those electoral votes to the ostensible loser, Rutherford B. Hayes, in return for... Uh, the Republicans agreeing to withdraw federal troops from the South, thus ending Reconstruction and effectively handing the South over to the Democratic Redeemers, who basically put the former slaves back in their place by instituting the Jim Crow laws. In 1888, popular incumbent Grover Cleveland uh, went down to Benjamin Harrison in a lopsided electoral college vote of 233 to 168, despite winning 90,500 95 votes in the popular election. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cleveland eventually came back and got his revenge in the in 1892, which made him the only president to win two non-consecutive terms, which makes people like us just kind of happy to be able to bring trivia like that out at parties. For those who are in this panel, the vote in 2000, of course, comes to mind when... Uh, the election ended up getting decided essentially in the Supreme Court, despite Al Gore receiving about 500,000 more votes than George W. Bush, but then the court squashed a recount and George W. Bush ended up winning the election. Uh, and then, of course, there is 2016, um, which is probably the most egregious disconnect between the popular vote and the Electoral College. And it was, of course, the impetus for this electoral reform special. And Donald Trump received nearly 3 million fewer votes from legally eligible American citizens than did Hillary Clinton. Right, so what the Electoral College actually does, ends up doing, and the reason it wasn't, uh, is, is the following. It, it takes the popular vote and it uh, sections the popular vote into districts, states, uh, and it says whoever wins that state it just happens to get uh all of the electors from that state no matter how much they want it by uh and then those electors will go in and we add it up so it's actually the way that it has operated for pretty much every election has been a really poor translation of the popular vote into geographical bits that then turn into sort of on off flipped uh wins for those states um the reason it turned into that system instead of the original system of these electors getting together to actually pick someone was that uh, immediately as soon as Washington stepped down and didn't run for a third term, um, the United States political system split into two parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. And what ended up happening was that the parties of each state pressured their or picked pledges that were loyal to the party. And so when a party won a state, 
Uh, that state said, okay, great. Our party, all of the pledges, or all of the electors, you guys are going to go vote for the person who won this state because we're now in control because we won the state. Great. Let's do it. And so ever since then, what has happened is that when a party wins a state, all of the electors from that state pledge to vote for the uh, presidential winner of that state. Um, and that's the system we have now. Wow. That's a, a pretty big uh, flaw in the system. You'd think uh, someone would have seen political parties coming. I mean, weren't there political parties before? What, how did the Founding Fathers feel about political parties? They didn't want them. As There's a great webcomic that I really like where Washington is sitting there with Adams and Jefferson. Uh, they're in a house, and Washington is about to walk out the door, and he goes, All right, John, Thomas, I'm leaving, and remember no parties <laughs> and then like a bunch of uh you know bad teenagers they look at each other with this smile and so originally the founding fathers actually believed that the system that they set up would uh make sure parties didn't happen um and one of the reasons they didn't anticipate it was because this sort of democratic system was so i mean really new and the old democratic systems were so different from the ones that they set up that they didn't have an historical model that would make it obvious to them that these parties would arise right and the previous examples of political parties that they had experience with were like in british parliament or the italian city-states where political parties were entirely around you know cults of personality and just some rich guy dispensing loot and you know so of course they they didn't want that um, based on the historical precedents they had. Well, ju just to uh, stand, uh, stand up for us Brits here, <laughs> I think by the end of the 18th century, though there is a certain, still a, a large amount of corruption in local polling within the United Kingdom, there was a clear philosophical difference between the Whigs and the Tories by that point. So it wasn't just a case of, um, I'm a big, strong man and a cult of personality. Definitely by the, the reign of King George, you can clearly see the, the Tories are conservative and they, and they are afraid of change. And the Whigs are more for the, uh, for the new metropolitan areas of the United Kingdom and are a little bit more embracing of free trade and, and change. So ju just a, a little point of clarification there. Sure. Uh, I would also throw out that the founders were not democratic necessarily. You know, they, they weren't sitting around wondering how Joe Everyman was going to find his way to the White House. Uh, in fact, they really did not want him to. Um, even the most democratic-minded founder we can think of, Jefferson, uh, clearly believed in a natural aristocracy, uh, an aristocracy of the mind, uh, in which statesmen would always be stepping up to fill this role. So therefore, the idea of the popular vote itself uh, being the real litmus test for who was qualified was sort of a foreign idea to them. Okay. So, since the founders hated parties so much, how come we ended up with parties, and how come we ended up with popular votes being the deciding factor? I think the best theoretical explanation people have is this thing called Duverger's Law, uh, which wasn't particularly clear, sorry, wasn't known at all during the time. The first political science department uh, emerged in Columbia in, 19, in 1850. Um, and so that's when we really started studying this stuff from a scholarly perspective. Duverger's Law says the following. 
when you have a district-based first-past-the-post system, which is what we have, the districts being either states or congressional districts, first-past-the-post being if you win the most votes in one round, you move on. Um, this actually pushes um, pushes an electoral system into two parties because what they're doing is trying to cobble together uh, the smallest possible majority, either in Congress or via the presidency. And so what it means is that there's consistently going to be um, two forces cobbling up because if there are three, two of them will combine as allies to become a single party that compromises on a lot of stuff and has a chance of winning. So long story short, it was a sort of evolutionary pressure um, based on the way that we vote that pressures politicians to form alliances with other politicians um, and with you know campaign machines and um, donation machines and stuff like that in order to have the best chance of winning. And everyone who doesn't happens to lose. So these are emer- two parties are an emergent property of our voting system. So... And, you know, more broadly, even in systems that don't just have geographically limited first-past-the-post systems, having a party makes you more likely to win because you can politically organize a bunch of different people. I mean, I think uh, European systems that have at-large elections to parliament, like, they still have political parties, right? You you know, I um, I don't know if I'd completely agree with with, with Eric's um, thesis there. Um I think it's a little bit more fundamental that it's a, a universality of humanity that there are some types of people who believe that um, we should bandy together for the common good and there are other types of people who are more fearful of others. And and I think that sense of the duality in terms of um, human innate philosophy of which I believe people like Jefferson actually talked about um, in his writings with with various politicians um, is really at the the core of the reason why um, fundamentally there are there are two parties because there's two uh, innate ways of seeing human human nature but you know I I, I could be wrong here but I, I believe that Jefferson did talk about this in terms of the kind of the natural state state of man and there's some analogy in terms of if I am on an island and I can grow a whole load of fruit, but my neighbour can't, and then he comes to me and he's hungry, uh, you know, in terms, you know, do I then, um, you know, help him out thinking that if I don't, he might uh, then try and steal this fruit? I certainly agree. And I think it's uh, it's also supported by political science that, it is natural to form parties generally. So yeah, I was definitely just saying why two and not more. Um, and that's Duverge's law, but why parties, both of you are spot on. I think, um, Royfield, Royfield's bringing up a theory called in group out group theory, uh, which is hugely instrumental in understanding human organization. Um, I mean, war to racism, to party, you know, how we form parties and political groups, all sorts of things. Um, and yeah, and then Ben's point is that, you know, 
if you are organizing into a party rather than running alone. Not only do you have alliances and shared resources, but you also share from the benefit of being able to market with a brand, right? So if you think of this as a marketing thing, it's much easier to be able to say, hey, I'm a such and such party, so you generally know what you're getting. I don't have to articulate every single point individually to you from a completely unique thing. If someone else says, hey, I'm the conservative guy or I'm the left-wing guy, I'm like all these other left-wing guys you know generally. People can go, oh, okay, I I get what you're talking about. Um, I'm a little interested in hearing from uh, my non-American friends on the call uh, about what your general impressions of the Electoral College are, considering you don't have institutions like this uh, in the UK uh, or New Zealand. Well, I guess from an from an outsider's perspective, the curious thing it's and this is I'm I can't speak for Royfield here because I'm speaking from a much smaller country than the UK. Um, so much of how we pay attention to America is to do with navigating our way through Pacific politics because we are sandwiched between America and China. So on the one hand, we have an ostensibly you know, communist regime in China who's interested in trading with us. On the other hand, we have the American uh, Democratic Republic who's interested in trading and engaging with us. With the American electoral system, people get... I wouldn't say that they're ignorant of how it works, but they are very confused as to why exactly it functions this way. And obviously we've covered it um, in the last 30 minutes already. But for... For New Zealand and the UK, which are based on similar systems, which is often called the Westminster system, it's a, it's a much more direct democracy kind of system. We we still have electorates, but they're not the electorates that you would recognize in America. They We rep, we elect our representative, they go off to parliament, and they represent us directly in that. It's as if we've, you know, we've made Congress the, the main power, and the prime minister is really just a slightly elevated member of Congress. So the electoral system in America is perplexing from an outside perspective <laughs> is the best I can offer on that. Um, obviously, once you learn about it, it's, you know, I can, I can see why the original drafters of the, of the legal system thought that it should be that way. One thing I'm curious about, and I'd like to know from you guys, if you can explain is obviously when this was, the system was being drawn up, America was still only, 13 colonies it was a very small strip on the coast of a number of small colonies why or how did that change as the states expanded westward was there any discussion about whether they should move to a slightly more direct system it didn't quite develop in that way obviously um so the electoral college is part of the Constitution of 1787, which is actually the second constitutional government of the United States. The Articles of Confederation preceded it. The Articles of Confederation put into place uh, a act which I'm spacing on, which I believe was the Northwest Ordinance. That is correct. Which put in to place the, the manner in which new territories which were, by this act, ceded to the national government to get rid of all the conflicting Western land claims that were out there. 
basically New York and Virginia both claimed the Ohio River Valley, so to get rid of that little problem, that's now national territory. And it defined how those territories were to be established and enter the Union as new co-equal states, not as like junior states, but once it reached a certain population and did checked all the boxes, it would join as an equal state. To my knowledge, there was never a discussion about amending the Constitution to deal with growth in that manner as much as it was these new states would just join onto the body of the Union and participate like anyone else within the uh, constitutional order of 1787. The founders were a little touchy about colonization. <laughs> Surprising. Um, yeah. Which is actually an interesting question because New Zealand is a <laughs> colonial territory and continues to be nominally under the overarching authority of the Queen of England. And yet we we occasionally touch here on the sort of public debate about the idea of being a republic one day. But I don't think there's any suggestion from anyone who gets involved in that discussion as to whether we are going to change the fundamental nature of the democracy as opposed to just removing the overarching figurehead and, you know, changing the flag and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's, it sort of makes me think now that I'm saying this, whether there's a larger question. You know, people people often would think about reform in terms of tinkering with the system, but how often do people genuinely think about overhauling major aspects of it without without going full revolutionary i mean um um that's that's a pretty good question actually there there have been several attempts through proposed constitutional amendments because we have to keep in mind and i I guess we can generally switch to reform now as a topic yeah sure that to change the electoral college will require a constitutional amendment yeah but but does it though that does it uh yeah Yes, because no, it's defined in the first article of the Constitution, I feel. No, but you could quite simply say um, that whoever wins the popular vote or the Electoral College uh, voters w- will vote for him. And that doesn't need to be a change of the Constitution. That could be um, like a, ge- a glorified gentleman's agreement. You could still have the okay. Electoral College, which is set you know, up... They're... Go on, sorry. You're... You're correct. You're correct. It's actually a movement out there called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, mm-hmm. um, which is an agreement among a group of states to essentially agree to award their electoral votes to whoever wins the overall popular vote. Now, there is a a, uh, a compact clause in the U.S. Constitution uh, as well, and uh, a compact of this nature... Uh, would essentially need a certain number of states to sign on. And right now there is an agreement uh, in which 10 states have accepted it, along with the District of Columbia. And together these states currently hold 165 electoral votes, which is about 30% of the total electoral college. But it would need the agreement would need to encompass about 61% of the electoral votes uh, in in order to give that compact legal force. So if we can just um, leave aside the methodology of the legal change then, because uh, that's, that's out there, that would essentially yeah. put us into a situation where we had a sort of a straight plebiscite system where whoever wins the popular vote wins. How do people feel about the straight 
you know, the, the straight up plebiscite version, popular vote wins version of uh, presidential elections. Well, I'm going to quickly go first uh, because I'm sure I've probably got the least amount to say in this and then, then I'll back out. But um, it makes sense. And I think we've slightly done the Electoral College down a little in terms of its weighting, um, saying that it, it's the weighting of the system, which is really where ultimately where the problem is, because ultimately, if the weighting of the Electoral College uh, electors was exactly the same as the weighting of the population of the states that they represented, we wouldn't be having this podcast, you know, would we? So ultimately, it's the weighting that, that we're really talking about. But it makes sense to me that in a country where you have one state having, um, I forget what the population of California is, but this is for the sake of argument, let's say it's, it's 35 million. It's going to be around that number. And then you have Rhode Island, which is going to be nowhere near that. It, it probably barely ma- makes a million. <laughs> that there yeah, is actually. some some level of not equalizing that because that's your senators, but there is some level that kind of recognizes that these smaller states have a slightly more of a weighting of a representation. So for me, the question is, can you have one candidate getting a national vote of three million more than another? And is that fair? Um, if the question... If the question is that is not fair, then we need you need to slightly amend uh, the weighting. But I think there is a fundamental uh, kind of truth in that these states can be very disproportionate in the size, in the physical size, but there are entities and units in and of themselves. So there needs to be some form of weighting. Then I'll back out of this now, gentlemen, for the next ten minutes. Can I just sort of <laughs> jump in there with a little statistic that might be slightly interesting? The, the yeah. three million discrepancy, right? Hillary Clinton wins by three million, yeah? Yeah. That right. is more than the voting population of my country. <laughs> we have, That's as of the latest election in New Zealand, which was 2014, there's another one in September this year, we had 3,140,000 registered voters in the country. In the last election, 2.4 million voted, and that shows our government. So if Hillary had come here, she would have won by a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> and she could have then she s- could have taken her surplus over to New Zealand and ruled both countries. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there that um, the, the plebiscite bothers me, though, uh, a little bit. Because, as Dominic points out, like... Hillary won by 3 million votes. And a lot of that was due to running it up like whoa in California. Right. And so I, I my fear, and I think, you know, even Royfield touched upon the need to wait it, and I think that's what the founders were thinking as well in counting the, con- uh, the congressional delegation as your electoral uh, vote number. Right. You know, is that we don't want a situation where essentially California and New York and, you know, the, the northwest of the country where the major population centers are deciding the election every time. Because then what what about all those people in the flyover states? Right. And, you know, that this gets to the founding fathers being touchy about colonialization. Uh, and it, it should be said that in uh, urban planning circles, we talk about a concept called 
Gemini. Um, uh, Eric seemed uh, a little bit confused before about uh, what it meant, but it, it's essentially the complete dominion of an area by an urban center. So the perfect example would be England and London. You know, uh, London completely Amen, blowing away. Brother. Yeah. Um, Paris. Didn't work in Brexit. Paris, true, but Paris and France uh, and these these centers so completely dominate the population and the economy that they come to dominate the politics as well. This is certainly an issue, but it should be said that, you know, England isn't exactly sending out death squads out into the countryside and, you know, there, there aren't too many, uh, you know, things have worked out for a lot of these countries that have hegemonic population centers. That you know of. Let's okay. just say that. <laughs> I was going to say that I missed something. <laughs> Here's the thing that I think is complicated about the um, sort of hegemony question. And thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, sure. One may say, oh boy, it's, it's bad news if sort of New York, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, Houston, whatever, get to decide the whole election. And it seems really bad because they're geographically small areas we can list them off fairly quickly the problem is the alternative to that if we're using some sort of straight up system um and we're saying we don't like the straight up system because it means that the majority can tyrannize the minority i think the the counter question to that is well should the minority be able to decide the president in spite of the majority yeah. um and I think that's the complicated part. And I think what we're part of what we're striving for is how can we create some sort of consensus between disparate kinds of people and areas in the United States to be able to decide on someone that, you know, in the nature of compromise, everyone's going to kind of dislike a little bit. Um, and I think that's what we'd be shooting for in reform. Yeah. Um, and I agree with Tom that a straight majority doesn't quite hit the mark. Um, but I don't think the idea that, you know, I don't think like the contrapositive is the is the obvious answer yeah. that like, oh, OK, if we don't want California deciding it, it should be everyone but California, right. you know. <laughs> so there, there's some basic to, to follow up on Eric's point. There's some basic structural issues with the plebiscite that don't get resolved uh, that, you know, there's some basic structural issues with the Electoral College that don't get resolved by a straight plebiscite system. Um, that we're still, you know, one of the big issues with the Electoral College is that we, we don't have any third parties. We just are stuck with these calcified two-party systems. And part of that is that, like, the vote of the people who lose is just completely discarded. So if you value your vote at all, you have to pick one of these two parties. And in a plebiscite system, um, and part of that is that then people some people don't vote for either of the two parties and so then you end up with first of all minority victories in almost every election in our lifetimes uh for president you know people only win with 48 percent of the vote um and then you're also then discounting the vote entirely of you know 51 percent of the population who voted um and that's sort of a fundamental problem for a democracy um so we even with a plebiscite, we'd be dealing with a similar situation where, you know, we'd still potentially have minority victories and the people who voted for the losing side, they're still gone. So that's, uh, you know, just to, to clarify further problems with the plebiscite system. So just, are there... Sorry, just, go ahead. Just, just whilst we're, we're on this point of hegemonic uh, population centres, um, 
just to take this conversation very slightly out of the realm of uh, America and electoral reform, this is the structural tension within the United Kingdom right now, and specifically uh, one of the potential outcomes of the Brexit vote is because England is so much bigger in terms of its population than the other three bits of the United Kingdom. So the population of England is something like in the region of 50 million, whereas Scotland is about five, Northern Ireland is about two, and Wales is about three. It, it's it's some, in that kind of region. Uh, so um, you get Scotland that votes overwhelmingly, stay within the EU, and England votes to leave. And there is that innate tension there uh, because there isn't a commonality between between the t the two votes at all. It's binary. So the Scottish Independent Party is potentially looking at a, a second referendum to leave the United Kingdom because it says it's been ruled by London. Right. So what are the alternatives then to a plebiscite and the Electoral College? That's a great question. <laughs> One of my favorites is called Instant Runoff. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of Instant Runoff. And the reason I'm a big fan of Instant Runoff is if we go back to Duverger's Law, it um, actually breaks the problem of Duverger's Law. So Duverger's Law, if you remember, is the idea that if you have a straight plebiscite or first-past-the-post system, um, there's going to be a natural clustering of parties into two. Um, and for a lot of reasons, I think this is particularly unhealthy, in part because there's more than two kinds of Americans, and there's more than two kinds of ways of looking at the country. The idea that you can fit yourself into one of two boxes for most people is actually pretty absurd. And the, as was alluded to earlier, one of the reasons we'll vote for one of the two parties is we've got, well, our third party vote is wasted. Here's how an instant runoff works and changes that. You go to the ballot and uh, you vote one time just like in an instant runoff. But instead of just putting a check on one box for one person, what you do is you put numbers, one, two, three, four, etc., in those boxes. What happens is all the number ones get counted up. The person, the candidate with the least number ones, they've lost, too bad, and now their number twos get picked up and put into the piles of the other candidates. If after that um, there's a majority, then great. You've now uh, got your, your president or your congressperson or whatever, depending on the kind of vote, and we move on. And now a majority of people have said, I prefer this person over the people, you know, over the, the other people who didn't get as many. So what it means is that even if your first, your number one doesn't get elected, uh, your preference still ends up mattering because your number two might be the person who gets elected because you and enough put, people put number two down. Um, and if there's not a majority at that point, we keep repeating. So we take the smallest pile and then redivide their votes among the next, uh, you know, sort of rank down until there is a majority. So not only does this mean that uh, more people get their sort of preference added to the pile, added to the winner, but it also means there's a chance to vote for a third party. So if you look at this last election, for example, let's say that you were one of the you know 10 or so percent of people that was excited about Gary Johnson. Those people fled Gary Johnson, possibly due to what is Aleppo, but large part possibly <laughs> due to the pressures of having to then say, okay, well, Gary Johnson's not going to win, and I really don't want, insert Trump or 
Clinton to win, so I'm going to vote for insert Clinton or Trump. What these people could have done, and you can map this to any situation, is they could have said, well, I still prefer Gary, despite not knowing where Aleppo is. Um, I'm going to vote Gary number one, and because I hate, let's just pick Trump, um, because I hate Trump, I'm going to put Clinton number two. This way they can still make their vote for Gary Johnson, and if Gary Johnson doesn't get to that majority, then their vote goes to Clinton, and they haven't inadvertently helped Trump win. You can see how this changes the incentives to allow people to be able to vote third party more freely, which means more parties get into the game, and more different perspectives in the United States are represented in the vote. Okay, so that's similar to in European election. Well, it's exactly the same in European elections, uh, all throughout Europe, for the European Parliament, sorry. And it's a bit similar to the French presidential runoffs, etc. Similar, a bit, bit different, but right. similar. But uh, can I just throw in a potentially controversial point here? Sure. You, you Americans uh, seem to think that you invented democracy. And you seem to think that uh, your constitution is lauded all throughout the world in terms of it's a model that people still kind of look up to. And you have an idea that your civic norms in terms of how, how, how you vote um, are the ideal. Wouldn't that be a little bit complicated if we were to if you were to go to that model? Would, wouldn't it just confuse the bejesus out of people at least the first second time around when they had to go and do that? Because you don't have a plurality of, of parties. I would contend that it's kind of what I was kind of saying before is that it's the relative weighting that needs to be looked at if what people are saying is that three, for somebody to be able to get three million more votes than another is unfair. But I still think there is value and merit in the system of smaller states having a slightly more of a weight because of you are the United States and some states are bigger than others. For me, at the root of this problem is actually uh, your political discourse, where um, the political discourse of this country has been coarsening for 20, 30 years. And if you can sort that out, this is not such a big problem, really. And, and at the heart of that is your gerrymandering of your congressional districts, which leads to a coarsening whereby Americans see themselves as not having anything in common with other Americans that vote for the other <coughs> colour. If you can sort that out and then tinker, I would say, with uh, the weighting of the Electoral College or just have the, the compact to say whoever gets the, the most amount uh, wins, I don't really see what... what uh, I don't see that this is um, a, a major issue because at, it, at its fundamental level, it's about the coarsening of political debate i think within this country i i do want to pick on one thing picked up on one thing you said um you know we Amer some americans might think that our constitution is like top dog and that everyone loves it and they can't wait to get a piece of it and want one just like it that's not the case uh internationally i can't think of a no, another exactly. nation no, no, no. who's no. who's adopted it but on the other hand you have the British parliament, uh, British parliamentary model, which uh, so many people have adopted. Yep. So why don't we throw that out? What What about the British parliamentary system? Why is that the bee's knees? Can I, um, in your opinion, can I, can I 
alter the question slightly? Sure. Because um, th- there's been, you know, 200 years of uh, invention in constitutional creation since our constitution was created. And I don't think I would want to necessarily go for the constitution in the developed world that was created before ours uh, <laughs> to, to pick a, a potential... Uh, comparison point. I my personal pre- favorite is the the German Constitution, but uh, a lot of the the continental constitutions I think present the most interesting and stark contrast uh, in terms of the allowing a proportional representation system in their elections, which are held at large, which allows you to have representation for you know minority regions that might not necessarily agree with the mainstream political parties, but can still get representation in the legislature, but would get shut out of a first-past-the-post geographically limited system like the Westminster system. I should clarify here, actually, New Zealand's legal and government structure is still Westminster, but our election system was actually changed in the early 1990s. We dropped first past the post by a popular uh, a plebiscite, essentially, and we adopted the German-inspired mixed-member proportional system, and that fundamentally changed how New Zealand parties distributed and shared power in the extent that before the early 90s, before this plebiscite, we we're sort of skewing towards a two-party system with the National Party, which is our sort of centre-right government, centre-right party, and the Labour Party, which is our, you know, traditional left-wing workers' party. After the mixed-member proportional system, or MMP, was introduced, no government, to the best of my knowledge, or maybe just one, has won an outright majority in the election. The current government of New Zealand is actually a coalition of four political parties, two of which are right-wing and two of which could best be described as centrist. Um, the the move away from a first-past-the-post system can have a massive impact on how you see parties represented within the political system. And I think that's something probably worth maybe discussing just for a minute in terms of possible American futures. And, you know, so many people recognize that one of the major crippling things in the American democracy is this black and white republic republican democratic divide and to the point that third party candidates are you know throw your vote away kind of kind of idea how do you think a mixed member system which essentially allows for the election of a party to power but also a second vote for a local representative so for instance just to give a very basic explanation um, my suburb in my city uh, Kingsland I would go to the electoral the electoral centre and I would be given a form and there'd be two columns in it. In one column, it would say, which party do you want to represent you in Parliament? And I would tick whichever party I decided uh, based on the current campaign uh, discussions. They would then have... It would also be a question, which candidate in the local area do you want to represent you in Parliament? And all the candidates are associated to greater or lesser extents with various parties. You know, every party puts forth a candidate for each sector. But there are also independents. And the this split of the vote into two distinct votes reshaped how Parliament was composed and has allowed second and third tier parties to really gain a lot more voice in the political system. 
and we can debate the merits of you know whether parties should be allowed to do that if they don't gain outright majorities but i'm curious to think curious to ask from you know the americans um, and royfield how do you think the splitting the vote into a more into a system like that say where you choose a member for kentucky kind of like your senator or your congressman but that actually has a fundamental impact on the general election for the presidential system i guess it would be hard to hard to organize because you have this separate election for the for the particular president but i'm curious to know what your thoughts are I mean, personally i would love it uh this is my favorite kind of political system and it means that i will perpetually be disappointed uh in the american political system unfortunately but um to my mind it would you know let the political i mean the political parties in the united states have essentially always been non-ideological cynical uh conglomerations of people who just are together for convenience sake and um it would allow parties to actually represent ideas and you know the best interests of their constituents rather than trying to cram together the best interests of a couple different constituencies in an attempt to cobble together something to some sort of coalition and then later on after the parties were already in parliament or legislature or congress or whatever we're going to call it uh then they would be forced to compromise in order to get anything done and then they would form then they would form the coalition out in the open where everyone could see where all the bodies were buried and you know it, it would uh prevent it would you know allow a uncoarsening of the dialogue to a certain extent by having everyone be forced to compromise with each other but then it would also allow people to actually say what it is that they want in an election that's my that's my view the the only thing that that I would say to what what Dominic said was we seem to have some kind of slippage between talking about a parliamentary system and then first past the vote uh, voting, which the two don't necessarily need need to go hand in hand. Um, you know the the one thing about a parliamentary system is that that means that your your congressman would actually have. Um, much more power in terms of uh, influencing the the executive um, because it's almost kind of kind of one in the same there. Uh, but um, I I don't re I for me there would have to be such a cataclysmic. I mean, we could be living through it actually, but there have to be mm-hmm. such a cataclysmic uh, set of crises that would need to shock the American Republic. For there to be a wholesale tearing up of your much vaunted constitution, uh, and you know, and people be worried about dishonouring the founding fathers, and there'd be an existential crisis in terms of what it means to be 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 American. Um, and I honestly don't think that there needs to be such root and branch uh, reform uh, is ultimately w- what I would say, though, uh, and just to take a, another kind of british perspective in this we've had in effect a duopoly of parties or we had a duopoly of parties from the 1740s when we had our first true prime minister roger walpole until the early 1900s then the labor party came along and within 20 years um, though we had a three-party system, really it was a two-party system. The Liberal Party, the old Whig Party, became 
very small and only had about two or three MPs until the 1970s. So even through a two-party, uh, sorry, through a first-past-the-post system, which is um, in effect, in effect, you know, whoever votes in that constituency, you'll get the most amount of votes, just wins regardless. You still can actually have um, third parties, four parties, eventually emerging if uh, the, I would say, the body politic allows there to be a true dialogue so everything isn't binary all the time. You know? I will say though that you know the reason that you have the four or more parties in the UK right now is because there's so much uh, regional friction going on because of the issue with London as the hegemon and, and England as the hegemon. The other parties are the Scottish National Party, the Unionists. That's an oversimplistic view though. <laughs> though it, there's a lot to be said for it in terms of the Scottish National Party because they were railing against being ruled by England regardless of who England voted for and then that came to the boil in the 1980s with Margaret Thatcher with her being so right-wing and Scotland being instinctively then and ever since left-wing but the Liberal Democrats that that that's nothing to do with the London hegemony and neither UKIP so even within the body politic of England, there are at least four and actually five parties. But I've got to be careful that we don't use the UK as, as too much of an example in all this because we're talking about US reform. I'm, I'm completely, uh, completely aware of that. But, it's, but you know, I'll just go to say that as much as I think that the United States Constitution is somewhat over vaunted in terms of um, how wonderful it actually is, um, I think um, it's more of a tinkering at the edges that you can get things which are much more um, equitable in terms of a plurality of uh, discussion and, um, and and of partisan political view, um, which is ultimately really what we're talking about. Uh, Eric and Tom, did you have anything you wanted to add to this this part of the question? The only question I have, and we can bring it up later if it comes up later is um, I think a lot of American listeners don't necessarily understand how in a um, in an election if I'm electing a party how do the uh, like if it's a list election or a, an at-large election how do the representatives in that case get picked because I know if I'm voting in my district for person A or person B if person B wins well they're the person but if I vote for like the Republican Party how do I know who are the individuals that are going to be in um, representing me because I think you know what we're accustomed to in the United States is this idea that there's at least some individualism in each kind of representative I mean you're um, you know you're stump uh, speeches you're like, and stuff yeah exactly so like we're used to we're used to people like actually having some personality and as much as we've been a little more um, party line voting a lot more party line voting recently than we used to be um, we're certainly used to the idea that like someone's going to break and we want to, you know, from the party line and say, you know what, this is, this is right for me. So anyway, I think that was all going through my head and I figured that our, you know, American listeners might love hearing from Dominic on how that works, um, when you are voting for a party rather than just a person. Sure. So one of the ways it works in New Zealand, or I guess I should say the way, again, reminding listeners that I'm not a political scholar or anything, I'm just a... Um, interested citizen um, every party registers their members 
the ones who are standing for elections in the various regions and locations. They also register a whole list of what's known as list MPs or list members of parliament. Now, anyone who gets the popular vote in their particular region, they are going to parliament. They, they've been chosen by that section. If a party receives a certain number of party votes, they are essentially given a certain number of list MPs whom they can bring in based on their list. So when you vote for the party vote, you are assent- you're voting on the basis of what that party as a whole has been promising as part of its agenda for the current election. And every party, you know, will do its sta- casual thing of having debates and stating its its agenda that it wishes to push forward after the election. So you'll vote for your local representative on terms of how they how they engage, you know, how they their personality, their kind their policies, their voting record if they're a experienced member of parliament. You vote you and but you might vote for a different party. And I did at the last election. I voted for two different people. I voted for one local candidate and a different party. Because I appreciated the local candidates' policies and I thought out of the field of individuals in the region they were the best suited in terms of what I wanted them to ach- what I wanted the representative to achieve. But I voted for a different party because I thought that in terms of the crop of parties, that party was offering the most of what I wanted. Now, the distinction is that mo- some parties in New Zealand won't actually chase the local electorate vote. They'll only chase the party vote. And so they will receive a certain percentage of the vote, say 20% or 15% for the th- uh, third largest party. And that gives them a certain number of MPs that they're allowed to bring into parliament and they will choose their MPs. And they're ranked publicly, so you can tell when you're going into it if you've done your research, which obviously I can't guarantee everyone has. If you are familiar with the party, you know when you're making the party vote who's likely to get in based on the percentage. You know that if you're voting for, say, the National Party, that you know their first 10 MPs that they've listed are these 10 MPs, and that's the idea of who's likely to get in. So... It does encourage a, it can encourage a bit of strategic voting in the sense of you can choose different people from different um, parties depending on your two votes. It does require a bit more engagement in terms of being familiar with both a party and a local electorate, but I guess that's really no distinction from choosing a presidential candidate versus choosing your senator or congressman. Yeah, so I guess um, as we sort of as we sort of go through it, I guess the the kicker, and I think Royfield touched on this briefly, is that. The thing which really distinguishes the American system is that you vote for your representatives and then you vote for your president separately. Whereas we, in New Zealand, we vote for our representatives and the political party. And the leader of the political party that wins, they become the prime minister. I was say, well, I think at the heart of that lies uh, a difference in governing philosophy. Um, I think many non-Americans uh, see it as a value to have unity in government where I think a lot of Americans value different parties running different parts of it. I don't think we generally like cohesive government because there's a distinct, almost anti-government, not like... You're distrusting of authority. Yes, there's a distinct distrust of authority in the American character, which uh, wants us to have divided government, almost as an additional check and balance. And the, the other thing is, on a practical level, we, we started this discussion by talking about, you know, ways to reform the Electoral College. And if we were to potentially go to a parliamentary system, we would 
basically be reforming everything about the U.S. government other than the Electoral College, because the Electoral College would still pick the president. It's just that the way we choose the electors would essentially potentially be, you know, via Congress, via this parliamentary electoral system. We'd sort of change the entire government around the one thing that everyone objected to in the first place. Well, not necessarily, because yes. what if instead you dropped the presidential election entirely? I mean, this is hypothetical. Um, don't freak out too much. And every every party, the Republicans and the Democrats and whoever else, stated who their intended leader was. And when the vote came through, I don't know, Congress or whatever, whoever led the, the winning party became the president. As I'm saying that, I'm thinking, my God, you might wind, wind up with someone like Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan as your president. But it's a, a question I feel I should throw out there is that if you... If you remove the presidential election itself from the equation, I think the the system, the game changes slightly in a quite fundamental way without actually having to reform the entire system. I would say to what you just said there, Dominic, is that that sounds so anti-American in terms of the ideals of America that I don't see that flying purely as, as a Brit who's somewhat in love, in awe, and scared of, of the American Constitution <laughs> in equal measure. You know, um, one of the amazing things about the ideals of this country is that anybody can run to be president, in theory. And, uh, you know, and to take that away, fundamentally, th this is, that's not, not America, purely from an outsider looking in, is what I would say. Yep, that's a very good point. Uh so um, all this discussion of parliamentary-style electoral reform, uh, pie in the sky as it may be for little old me, um, brings us to one basic truth of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, the president is supposed to be important, but he'll, he's only one. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the three branches. Congress is actually the branch that is most supposed to represent the real voice of the people. And yet, public confidence in Congress has never been lower. Would anyone like to walk us through how Congress is currently elected, for those who don't know? 
I can give you the short version. Yeah. Um, That's what we have time for. So the short version on how... What's that? The short version is what we have time for. Great. So, there are 435 districts for 435 different seats. Every state has a certain number of districts proportional to its population. If you're in that district, you get to choose between... You get to choose one of two or more, or sometimes only one candidate. Um... So whatever party manages to get someone on the ballot or decides to get someone on the ballot um, is someone you can choose from for your congressional seat. Each seat is a first-past-the-post win, so whoever gets the most vote in that one uh, shot goes on to be the representative of that district in Congress. And then, of course, there's two senators who are elected at large in each state. Oh, yeah, sorry. I just meant the House. Yes, and then... uh, yeah, yeah, and then each senator, yeah, gets the votes of the entire state, and in no state are both senators elected at the same time. So, uh, in your every two years, you're either voting for one, which is two thirds of the time, or zero uh, senators coming from your state. And that wasn't always the case up until uh, someone can remind me. I think it was in the twenties. The senators were selected by the state legislature, but then they passed constitutional amendments and got rid of that whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it was in the Progressive Era. I believe it was the 17th Amendment. Cool. Um, And we should probably then also say that the apportionment of the uh, House of Representatives seats to each state is a function of the U.S. Census, which is actually constitutionally mandated. It picks out what the population of the country is, where everyone lives, and awards seats based on that. But the award of the seats isn't exactly proportional to the number of people, and as a result, the value of a vote in different states can uh, vary, let's just say. Which gets back to what we were sort of just talking about with the Electoral College thing. Yeah, so basically the law is currently, the idea of representation is one man, one vote, and the the... The census is used to roughly make each vote weigh the same, uh, and that makes the congressional districts roughly the same size. So that's the idea that everyone's equally represented in Congress. And this is most likely talking about the House specifically. There's one major thing, in my opinion, and, I, and I'm sure several of you may agree with me, that really undermines that idea of votes really being valued the same and that is gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Gerrymandering is a term that goes back to 1812 and originates right for where me and Eric are sitting in Massachusetts and is attributable to Governor Elbridge Jerry. He and his Democratic-Republican allies got to redistrict the state of Massachusetts and did so in a very creative and original manner, leading to some of the districts being shaped as one Federalist noted, like a salamander, which he named the gerrymander. <laughs> and really all it is is a process, and it's changed very little over the years, where the party in charge gets to reshape these legislative districts in a manner advantageous to their political party and their continued dominance of the legislature. So, for instance, if you have one district that's, say, solidly Democratic, but you have a Republican legislature, they can choose to redistrict in a way to break that Democratic 
block of voters into two, three, maybe four, if they're really creative, you know, different districts and diffusing that vote, essentially ideologically disenfranchising the Democratic vote in that area. Because people who don't pick the winning person, their vote is entirely thrown away. Yeah, and, and there's some crazy stuff. Think about the South. Everyone thinks the South is solid Republican. Um, in 2012, 41% of Southerners actually voted for a Democrat. But Democrats only ended up with 29% of the seats in the House. This meant that Southern Democratic voters were four times more likely to be underrepresented in Congress uh, than the national average. Yeah, what's interesting about gerrymandering is when we look at, you know, I'm sure we're Everyone on the call has seen some of the more obnoxious uh, gerrymandered districts that look like salamanders or weird curvy lightning bolts or the things like that. Um, I was doing some research on it, and if we look at our home state of Massachusetts, there are 10 congressional districts. And in 2010, before another redistricting, uh, 39% of voters had voted for a Republican candidate, and they got none. So all of the uh, so those 39% of Republicans are like, oh, well, you didn't get anyone from... Massachusetts. Um, and what's interesting about Massachusetts is because Republicans are fairly, di uh, except for the Boston area, they're fairly diffuse. Um, so there's not like a geographical concentration of, uh, of these Republicans. It was very easy to cut up districts to spread them out um, and keep them as minorities, uh, but large minorities in all of these districts without having drawn those particularly heinous looking um, uh, districts uh, and keep them from being represented at all, and and I think that Massachusetts is a perfect example of where, like, even uh, even without the kind of gerrymandering you see in something like North Carolina, purely district based representation uh, has you know has a fundamental flaw, as Ben said. Like in your district, if you didn't happen to vote for the person who won, well, then you're too bad. And I think it's pretty easy to get bent out of shape about those really obnoxious looking districts. But, you know, when you start getting into and, you know, it's really easy to say, well, they're doing it wrong. But when you start talking about, well, how would you do it right? That becomes such a sticky issue. And, you know, there's there's memes running around the Internet about, well, we have this fancy algorithm that makes it fair. And it's like, really? <laughs> Uh, we're going to put our entire electoral process in the hands of a, an, an algorithm? How do we really guarantee that this is fair? Well, taking it out of the hands of interested parties, they can appoint a nonpartisan board of professionals, of <laughs> data analysts, and you know maybe come to a reasonable, contiguous district that doesn't take voting affiliation into consideration. That does sound good. <laughs> solved what's next yeah okay no i think you both have a good point the point is that like at the end of the day there does need to be some form of human decision making that is that influences the drawing of a district um and there's a few sort of theoretical questions that you have like should a district be representative of a community that has a shared like sort of geographical uh like gestalt right so for example should your districts uh, be very related to cities? Like, you know, in the Cambridge, Boston area, the, they're not really. I live in Cambridge, but I've got like a bit of Arlington and a bit of Belmont in my district. And does that make sense? I don't know. Um, 
So should it be like the city of Cambridge has one or two districts, if at all possible? Should it be that, you know, it's just I happen to fit into some random blob generated by a computer and it kind of doesn't matter whether I identify so much with Belmont or, um, you know, or should I be voting with the people that are on the red line with me, right? Because that's like kind of the area that I tend to hang out with. Who knows, right? And so I think to both of your points, the idea that there's this sort of naive sense that someone comes out and says, I wrote a, I wrote a computer script. These districts are much less wiggly and squiggly. Um, they're more contiguous, which means that their sort of perimeter to volume ratio is much lower. Um, it's it seems a step in the right direction, and it seems to prevent some of the most heinous stuff. But as soon as we're talking about reforming how we draw districts, we have to settle on something good that people can agree on. Um, and I think to both of your points, like the problem is, it is hard to have a system like a, a totally rules based system that someone can agree on. Um, you know, and Tom, I think it makes sense your idea that you would have you would try to find some way to create a fairly nonpartisan. And I say fairly because I, I don't know how to create a completely nonpartisan, but a fairly nonpartisan group that isn't affiliated with the party is that isn't someone who happens to get elected, um, right? That yeah. uh, that's that's making these decisions. Um, but I still don't know if you told if you put me in charge of that group, I would uh, you know I'd probably resign the next moment because I have no idea how to do it right, and I would not want to be tasked with the job. Yeah. Do you have anything like gerrymandering, or have ever even heard of that? Yeah, how do you district things in New Zealand, man? Um, huh. I don't know if I can comment on that. There's I mean, two districts, I bet. To the best. You don't even have <laughs> districts. No, that's true. You're not big enough. Um, no, just kidding. No, I don't think it's. I don't think it's so much a thing here. Um, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we rank pretty pretty highly on the um the old democracy index, and I don't. I, I honestly can't. I honestly but can't. How do you do it? Tell us how to yeah, do it. Damn I right, want to I will. know your secrets. <laughs> well, you 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 do have uh, a local representative. You were saying before in the the parliamentary discussion. So you gotta have districts, man. Tell us how you do it. Uh, we just kick them out when we don't like them. No, I'm I'm afraid I I don't know enough about gerrymandering to offer commentary on that. I'm sorry. Okay. It's it's a very foreign. Do you have any thoughts about like what we just described? Um. It's all a bit of a bit of a cluster, isn't it? Like, <laughs> dear listeners, for those of you listening, if you live in a place in the world where you really like how it's districted, please write into us and say, "Look, mate, here's how we district things. It's awesome, America. You should totally do this." Don't worry, Ben will send it right up the pipeline to DC. We'll get it taken care of. Tom, how can they contact us? Uh, well, they can. Uh... <laughs> They can like our Facebook page, Gora Podcast Network, and uh, send us a message. Great. I'll be eagerly waiting for them because okay. I'll, I'll do the research on it too. Send me something. You'll get an article at a reconsider. It's happening. So the other big, the other big political issue that's confronting non-federal elections is the issue of uh, permanent campaigning. So the idea of the permanent campaign uh, came from a gentleman named Sidney Blumenthal in the 1980s. Uh, where he was trying to come up with a theory to explain how modern technology of computer-driven polling and, and mass media were creating a fundamentally new system of politics where political consultants were really replacing the old-timey party bosses and where campaigning itself started to transform into almost a form of governing. There's a Time columnist, Joe Klein, who wrote about Bill Clinton's White House. 
and he wrote once describing the system, quote, the pressure to win the daily news cycle to control the news has overwhelmed the more reflective statesmanlike aspects of office. You know, I, I was kind of thinking about that the other day as I was watching Netflix <laughs> and I was watching the West Wing and you can totally see it there. Now, you know, pop culture portrays it very positively in the West Wing, but the flip side of it is anyone who's seen House of Cards. And you can see the, the more negative aspects of the idea of it's just about winning. It becomes about one-upsmanship. And each party kind of forgets the idea of governing, of, okay, this election happened, elections matter, now the winner gets to govern. That's not the case anymore. At least it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Because um, you have someone like Barack Obama in his second term with over a year or almost a year left in his term being neutered essentially and having the right to appoint a Supreme Court justice taken away from him because, well, there'll be another election coming along eventually and that's the election that's going to need to count. So what, what do we think is driving this other than, you know, technology? I have a theory. Okay. I've done a bunch of research on this. One of the things in, that's interesting in the United States is that throughout the 20th century, our primary system converted over from a party boss controlled, you know, back room, smoke filled, cigars, fat cats operation to um, a, a vote. So back in the day, uh, for both presidents and congresspeople, what happened was the parties selected who they would appoint as their candidate, and then people would vote on the party's candidates. So this is the back. Which makes sense because they're basically a private club. Exactly. They're a private club. And everyone who's not the Republicans and Democrats still does this. So the Green Party picked Jill Stein without a vote of the American population. And the Libertarian Party picked Gary Johnson without a vote of the population. These parties just pick their own dudes. And they have debates, but it's really a bunch of party insiders who pick them. What that means is that it's back then it's not that the campaigning wasn't happening. It's that the campaigning was happening, um, by, you know, sort of behind closed doors. There were conversations that were happening between a few people, so the American people weren't actually exposed to them. And what happened was the the national campaign kicked off only after the primaries. So, for example, if someone was going to run against Bill Clinton in '96, Americans would have had no idea who it was until the Republican primary is over. In other countries, this is also the case. So Dominic, for example, um, told us that the party picks the list of people that it's going to put up for its uh, list election. Um, and I'm presuming that in New Zealand, I know it's the case in other countries as well, the parties will pick who their MP candidate is going to yep. be. Um, so this means that the campaign cycle begins after the primaries end. For us, the campaign cycle begins long before the primaries even begin. And it means that there's no clear starting date. It, there's no point at which we go, okay, now we know who's in the race, let's go. The way to enter the race in the United States because of Democratic primaries is by declaring your intent or at least seeding your intent or forming an exploratory committee or having press conferences or just generally making yourself known. And it turns out that if we think of this as a competitive pressure, um, 
the competitive pressure is sort of constantly pushing people to start earlier and earlier to get some name recognition as early as possible, to take control of the messaging as early as possible. And because we don't have that start date, it means that the campaign season continues to grow um, in size, and there's really no reason it shouldn't be the day after the election. Now, the the flip side of this, just to, you know, give a, a positive to this, is that for the American political system, the, the primary system has sort of taken the place of some kind of um, a, a runoff system, a multiple runoff system, where people within, based on their political persuasion, within their side of the political spectrum get to, say, have a democratic voice in how their party is going to run, which is sort of necessary because the parties are such a uh, horrific conglomeration of different interest groups. But, yeah, that that's definitely a downside in terms of, you know, uh, a Republican primary campaign with 9,000 people on stage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the positive side of this is that it means that if we're thinking about, for example, the president, but we can translate this to Congress as well, is that you actually have more than only two choices. Because in the past, it was given that we have a two-party system, the parties would say, pick one of two, have fun. And you would there were 320 million people in the United States. And if we had the old system, the people would have two choices. Um, having a primary means we have more choices. Um, and really, it could be, you know, it could be anyone. Uh, they don't even have to technically declare their intent to run. You know, like the Republicans could have decided, all right, Mitt Romney, too bad. You're going to be our nominee. He would have to accept. Uh, but even if he wasn't campaigning, he could have been in. Um, the negative side of it is that uh, it puts it puts um, competitive pressure to start campaigning earlier, bigger, louder, etc. And you also are appealing to the... Uh, political base of your side of the political spectrum rather than the country as a whole so it drives partisanship as well exactly yeah in uh in my book um i think that's it's one of my theories for what has driven increased political polarization in the united states has been the fact that in this previous system where you were using backroom deals if you think about um the party bosses they were sitting there saying who's going to be the person that wins Right? They were very strategic. These guys are professionals, and they were obsessed with victory. When you appeal directly to voters who happen to be registered with that party, what you're appealing to is what they want, not what who do you think is strategically going to win. And to some extent, people will think about that, but to a large extent, you're saying, hey, party, who do you think represents your ideas best, as opposed to who do you think is going to win. And so it means that people come out of these primaries hardened because they had to appeal to their base, and not just their base, but the part of the base that was most likely to vote, which happens to be the most partisan, in order to advance. So um, there's actually a pressure in these primaries to push candidates um, to the right and the left during the primary, and then they like they try to kind of awkwardly recenter themselves during the general um Mitt Romney got caught with the etch-a-sketch gaffe in 2012 where someone asked his campaign advisor hey isn't there a risk that you know he's pushing himself right and he's gonna get clobbered in the general and the the campaign advisor said eh when the primary is over it's basically like an etch-a-sketch you start from scratch um <laughs> which he got blasted for for months turned out he won the primary anyway um but I, I think that 
that Etch-A-Sketch problem actually represents a reality that these guys deal with due to the primary system. So another issue, though, is that um, once someone's elected to Congress or whatever, um, they do need to have an eye on gathering, making sure that they have the resources for the next electoral campaign, uh, which gets us to the issue of fundraising. Um, And, you know, famously, the Citizens United uh, Supreme Court case kind of blew open the American political system for fundraising basically said uh, money is equivalent to political speech, and so people can get as much money as they want in campaign donations, and so it's this this sort of arms race to make sure that you have money. And the actual relationship between money and winning elections isn't perfect, but politicians feel like they're under this pressure to have way, way more than the other guy. Well, it's also it's not just about winning, it's also about influencing votes on issues um, mm. particularly for congressmen because in the house specifically if you get elected you need to start booking uh, fundraisers because you do run every two years it's not like the senate where you have six years and you can be a senator for a couple years before you have to worry about it when you're in the house your re-election does start day one so you're looking for money you're trying to build a war chest now that corporations are people and money is speech, certain big interests can have a lot of conversations with you. Hey, Dominic, how does this work in New Zealand? It's difficult. We haven't had large-scale discussions around the influence of money, particularly in New Zealand's political system. Definitely, once the political parties are in power, there are plenty of accusations of, you know, crony capitalism and politicizing and that kind of thing. Um, We don't have an equivalent of public action committees or the Citizens United vote, to the best of my knowledge. But at the same time, we have plenty of loopholes within the electoral rules, particularly around campaigning. Um, One of the rules which exists in New Zealand is that you're not allowed to advertise your political party on the day of the election. Once Once it gets down to election day, you have to all signs have to go down, all posters have to disappear, and everyone just has to go into the ballot box, theoretically uninfluenced um, in the recent thing. But that can change. Well, that can, you know, that still allows you to right up to the day to pour money into certain public platforms, like to the extent that the most recent political elections saw the websites of the major media outlets and newspapers in New Zealand plastered with the advertising materials of the party that eventually went on to win, the National Party. So there is definitely an aspect of that in New Zealand politics, at least around the campaigning season. New Zealand politicians are elected for three years at a time, so the cycle is slightly longer than your average um, US politician, perhaps. Um, I don't think they... They don't seem to campaign permanently. um, And I don't think you would suggest they do it nearly to the same extent as, say, a congressman would in America, or was it senators who run for two years? Uh, Whichever one one runs for two years. That's that's a a member of the House of Representatives. That's congressman. Uh, Congressman is is his title. Um, Um, That's just such a stark contrast with an American polling place. Like, you have... Groups of people standing outside, I think they have to stand about 20 feet back from the door, uh, holding signs of all the candidates, a lot of them shouting and chanting, 
Basically, the only rule is that the candidate can't follow you into the voting booth. Yeah, it's totally. And you're saying that they can't even have signs on that day. Nope all That's the all the billboards go down the night before. So, so on that note, and, and broadening the question a little bit more, um, well, and, and in the interest of time, there, there's some direct ways to deal with some of the issues we've talked about in terms of, um, you know, runoff systems and proportional representation, but in order to prevent rehashing that in terms of these issues of, um, and we've had some discussion about fixing gerrymandering, but in terms of, uh, money and politics and the permanent campaigning issue, are there reforms that we could take from looking at New Zealand and other places that, you know, we could, we could talk about doing that would potentially fix these problems or curtail them at least somewhat? I, I mean, I think a big one is a constitutional amendment, uh, to correct, the uh, ruling in Citizens United, uh, which kind of conflated uh, corporations as being biological human beings with a right to speech and money being that speech. that That's, to me, one of the big ones. I, I also think there needs to be a, a thicker wall put in place between PACs, political PACs, um, and the candidates, which is just tissue thin right now. I'd also favor some sort of time limit on the campaign season. I don't even know if that's possible, but it would sure be nice. Eric, did you have any thoughts about this one? Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I have less good ideas on what will work. I know everyone's really excited about corporations in particular, but for, excuse me, but for the elections themselves the number of donations or the amount of money from corporations is not actually the majority of it. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble pulling up the data right now, but most of it is actually from individuals. Now, many, a lot of it is from um, PACs specifically rather than individuals because individuals are limited in how much money they can give per candidate per year. They're not limited in how much they can give to PACs, which move on to the candidate, um, and those make up 25% of the money. The reason I bring this up is that while the amount of money in politics would go down if you somehow stopped corporations from being able to donate, it wouldn't be like an order of magnitude, right? It would be less, but not – it wouldn't be this huge game changer, I think. And so um, I think the debate over Citizens United is much more one about principle and like what is good and bad – like what is good and true – um, as opposed to, hey, is this going to be the thing that actually curtails the amount of money we're spending in political campaigns, the amount of time we're campaigning? Because I think the answer would be that we wouldn't see a huge difference as Americans um, if it went away and then we, you know, if it went away secretly uh, for a few cycles and then we asked someone, hey, at what point did Citizens United change? People might go, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. My experience has been the same. That's my belief based on the, the numbers that I know. Ben, what would your opinion be on a public finance elect election system? I'd generally be in favor of it. Um, but, it, again, I, I used to be much more militant about it, militantly in favor, but um, along the lines of what Eric said and what, one of the things I referenced before, it's, it's turned out that in doing a lot of research, the, the link between money and the winning elections is... Um, not as strong as people might think. Um, you know, you can out get outspent pretty heavily and still 
do well, which means that the, the actual value that people are getting out of all this fundraising is, is pretty limited. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's a perception issue that these Congress people feel like they need to do the fundraising. They, they definitely are spending too much time fundraising, but that's, you know, them making bad choices, essentially. Well, um, if I can interrupt for a second, <laughs> let's look at Betsy DeVos for a second. All right, yeah. And let's look at her political contributions and the number of yay votes in the Senate. <laughs> yes, that is certainly an issue. But it's also, it's almost more about optics. The, 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 the issues that really are leading to this, this permanent campaigning thing are, are almost much more deep. And, you know, I, I get back to my hobby horse of, uh, you know, having more parties, more competition, uh, to keep people honest, almost as a more of a real solution. But, um, I do think that, you know, uh, publicly financed elections would be part of that. Um, both in terms of having the federal government take more of a hand in how local elections are run would be, uh, kind of a good thing. Uh, and then also in terms of, you know, you can't spend over a certain amount, and if you're just a third party, you get guaranteed airtime once you have a certain, you know, threshold of uh, electoral support or something like that. To be fair, I don't. Th I think it's five percent now, nationally. Well, it's five percent. Right? I, I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, that, that's that's the uh, the Hitler rule threshold in Germany, that if you don't get five percent, you don't make it into the the parliament. So I, I think that's a good number. <laughs> The, the other thing I wanted to add is the sort of Debbie Downer on the corporations thing is I just pulled it up. We can link in the show notes if we want, but most of the biggest um, corporate donors actually donate to each party in about equal amounts. Um, and the reason is they're hedging their bets. So what they actually do is to the extent that they believe that they can influence a particular politician based on their donations – for them, like, it kind of doesn't... Like, they have a preference over who's going to win, but they're not going to throw all that money at one side um, and then lose and not have grease with the other side. And so if you look at particularly large donors like ExxonMobil and Chevron, ConAgra, stuff like that, you'll see that their donations to Republicans and Democrats are about the same. Um, and so what we can... my the, the, the hasty and not scientific conclusion um, that we can at least look towards if not draw from this is that to some extent what they do is they just fill everyone's coffers so that they can advertise more uh, but may not necessarily actually pivot the outcome of the election um, and if you look at it actually from the opposite perspective you can um, if, if you like what's the word if you sympathize with the corporations a bit to some extent for them they may feel that it's like a cost of doing business that if they haven't lined the pockets of um, of a politician that they may get unfavorable treatment from them um, in particular, because their you know competitors are doing it, and so uh, they may see it more as like instead of them kind of twisting their mustaches, corrupting the system, they may feel like the corruption is sort of pressed on them the way that you know, like in India, for example, you have people bribing officials to get stuff done, but nobody looks at that and says, "Oh, those evil individuals bribing officials in order to get their way." We so we go, "All oh, these poor guys, they have to bribe their way through government in order to get anything done." 
Um, and so you may be able to see that corporations may feel this way that they kind of have to bribe their way through in order to get anything done. Yeah. And so I think to some extent, uh, you may actually have man. a lot of corporations that would say, oh, it'd be great if we if nobody got to make any donations. That way we don't have to play this stupid game. We could just run our business. Well, I agree um, with that because it looks like they're just buying their assuring that they have influence over whoever whoever the winner is yeah so anyway i think as far as as far as changing money in politics in the united states uh, you know i don't think there's an obvious answer as much as people um really love to get up on arms about it except for something that's publicly financed as opposed to privately financed i mean there's just enough people with enough money um if you for example cut everyone down to a fairly small donation amount and then cut out like any PACs or anything like that, you could probably actually um, get it down pretty low. Um, and you just kind of have to play whack-a-mole with the loopholes. Like people would keep finding ways to have loopholes and some fairly independent commission who isn't dependent on these donations would have to be the thing that goes like, ooh, we found a loophole. Okay, let's close it. Let's close it. Um, and th- I think that would have an impact. I think it would just have to be more comprehensive than some of the more popular stuff that's on the table. Um, and I think it would to some extent have less of a less of an impact on the outcome of the elections than we think um but to both you know to everyone's point like it may it may have a huge impact on what decisions get made by the legislature once they're in office yeah because there's no longer that weird money relationship so this kind of leads us into one last issue with everything we've been talking about today uh, the the lack of democracy in the electoral college, the the buying of votes with the money in politics thing, um, the the constant campaigning, the, the the feeling that you know people who take office and then don't pay attention to the people who voted for them. Um, one of the big results of all of this has been uh, a lack of public participation, or maybe it's this isn't the sole cause, but it one of one of the causes possibly is a, a lack of public participation. This might not be clear to people who only pay attention to presidential elections. The, the turnouts there are pretty high, but as we know, the American government is a federal system, which means that a lot of power that's critical to our daily lives is vested in positions that are chosen outside of the presidential cycle. Uh, the midterm congressional elections are a case in point, uh, but most things that matter to us, like schools and trash collection, are controlled by state and local governments, which are elected in non-presidential elections. Uh, the turnouts for these elections from the midterms on down become vanishingly small, which, you know, who cares? If only a few people want to vote, um, clearly the people who care do vote, and everyone else can just live with the consequences, uh, right? That's that's not a problem, right? But you're going to tell us why it is a problem. Okay, right, yeah. I, I could tell you why it's a problem. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I mean, the reason it's a problem is it creates a bit of a, it creates a legitimacy crisis. Um, and it also, I mean, it, it, that's major problem number one. Major problem number two is that it just means that fewer voices are heard, which means a more limited slice of the population is being represented, um, which means that, you know, the politicians being elected could be honestly trying to fulfill the desires of their voters. But if a small portion of voters voted for them and a bunch of people didn't, well, they don't even know... You know, to a large extent, they don't even understand what they need to be representing, right. um, which deepens the legitimacy crisis as well as just making for bad government. Yeah. So to, to put some numbers to this, uh, in the 2014 midterm elections, there was a 35% voter turnout. And since votes are 
often won with minorities of the votes cast because, you know, you can win with 48%, 49% of the vote. Um, people often take office due to votes cast by 17% of the voting population or less, just as a for example in that midterm election. Um, and when you have such small slices of the population participating, uh, you can end up with massive influence over um you know, elections and thus all the policy that stems from those elections by groups like AARP, the American Association for Retired Persons, uh, church groups, teachers, unions, teamsters, groups with vanishingly small portions of the population, but which are able to get political organization out of their membership and get them down to the polls. Um, this makes these kind of innocuous interest groups take on a sinister political character in the current hyper-partisan political process. And the worst part is that these groups represent a fading power structure in America. Um, there's something called the bowling alone phenomenon based on a book by Robert Putnam. People are less and less engaged in organized social activities and organized social groups we tend to associate with friends and social networks that we build informally. And in these informal networks tend not to be politically in the kind of thing that is engaged politically by the current process. And as a result, most voters feel disenfranchised because they're not being politically activated by their social groups. And these elections are being swayed by, you know, these teeny tiny little voting blocks, which contributes to this this legitimacy crisis that uh, Eric was talking about. So I think the answer would be to find ways to get more people to vote. And I'm sure we could all think of a couple. Yeah, and if even before I think of talking about... Because there's two ways to get people to vote. One is to inspire them or motivate them to vote, and the other is to force them to vote. And there's a lot of ways to force them to vote. Um, I guess the third way is to make it easier to vote. Um, and, and we talk about, you know, there are disenfranchisement problems. Um, and I think those, those disenfranchisement problems, even in the most sort of extreme cases, talk about selective groups being disenfranchised as opposed to 65% of the population. Um, if we think about motivation, or, you know, regardless of how we fix it, one of the questions we need to ask is why aren't these people coming out to vote? It's not 100% clear, but one of the contributing factors is likely this. Um, since the 35% number that uh, ben brought up was in the midterm right people tend to come out to vote when the president is up they tend not to come out to vote when it's just their uh house of representatives congressperson or the senator one of the reasons for this may be the case that depending on how you measure safe 80 to 90 percent of house districts are considered safe which means only you know 40 some odd uh or to 80 some odd of the 435 house seats are truly contested um i've heard people naively say that oh well if we fix gerrymandering this wouldn't be a problem unfortunately that is just by the, the nature of gerrymandering that's the opposite of true gerrymandering will take for example let's say there are five districts four of them are solidly republican one of them is solidly democratic so this is ben's example what you actually do is you restructure things such that there are instead of one solidly democratic district there are five districts all of which are strongly republican but none of them are solidly Democratic, which means necessarily that you've put more Democrats in the Republican districts. So you've actually made them more competitive than they would have been. So of all the strange things gerrymandering does, it actually increases the number of somewhat, or increases the competitiveness of some districts. 
So if we're asking the question, how do we make these races more competitive? The answer is often a tough one because we've become much more regionally unified in how we vote, right? Rural areas vote Republican, urban areas vote Democratic uh, to almost to a rule. Um, and so geographically based stuff is going to lead to fairly safe districts. You know, we've talked before about ha combining this district-based thing or potentially replacing it with a list system or an at-large system as New Zealand has, um, such that sort of no matter where you are, you can vote for the makeup of the at-large part of your legislation. Um, and that way that the these minority votes will matter because they're national instead of broken up into these um, fairly homogenous districts. Uh, and that would motivate people more to go vote because they they have a chance, you know, at actually influencing the outcome. Whereas right now, to a large extent, they don't. Like, I kind of don't blame a lot of people for staying home. You know, in my district, I'm in, I'm in one of the safest seats in the country. Um, Republicans don't bother to put people up to run against Mike Capuano. In the, and he's a great guy, but he just runs solo all the time. You know, so very few people even bother showing up to vote. I can't blame them. I don't remember if it was this one or the, the previous one, but one of the uh, Democratic speakers of the state legislature in Massachusetts uh, famously said that he was speaker for life. Uh, I, I think it was a hot mic situation. <laughs> he got uh, caught saying it, but uh, he kept a seat for you know, like a decade after that. It must have been the one before the last one, because the last one's in jail, I think. Uh, it may have been the guy who ended up in jail, which is ironic. Anyway. Is it ironic, or does it kind of make sense? <laughs> it can be It can be both. Yeah. It can be both ironic and make perfect sense. And in this case, it, it, it they may be unrelated. But if they're related, that would be uh, sort of del deliciously ironic. Yeah. Something I think about getting people to the polls uh, is a question of, of registration. In the United States, you have to proactively register to vote. And then if you're registered to vote and you change your name, you move, or you're inactive for four years or more, you're no longer registered to vote and have to do it again. And there's also a rather arbitrary deadline about a month before the election that you have to register by in order to show up to the polling place and be able to vote. And inevitably, people will show up to their polling place, people who want to vote uh, and are motivated to vote, but maybe lack access to information, have busy lives, uh, missed a, a date but didn't know it because it's not like your local town clerk is very communicative uh, with you about these things. So I think one quick fix might be a universal registration system in which the the natural state of things is a citizen is able to vote where they re in the area where they receive mail reducing barriers to entry in general um you know a lot of people who don't vote have you know horrible retail jobs and they they can't get off so something like making it a, a national holiday where the, their employers almost have to give them off. Um, or give them time and a half. Which would be lovely. Um, yeah, like th these are, are definitely good ideas, definitely ways to get people motivated to make the effort to go to a polling station. Yeah, that goes hand in hand with the idea that, that Election Day is on a Tuesday. Like, <laughs> everybody's at work. 
Yeah. You know, it leads to huge lines either right before 9 o'clock, which is most people's start time, or after 5 o'clock, which is most people's quitting time. Dominic, were you going to say something? I was going to say, I was under the impression that American voting sort of began like a couple of days before the actual day. You can vote in advance, can't you? Yeah, in a lot of places, and this is another thing, actually, I should say, that there is no American voting. Um, right. Amer- voting, at the very least, is controlled by the states, um, and so each state sort of has a slightly different system. And then a lot of states, like the states we all we live in in the Northeast, are home rule states that devolve a lot of that down to the municipal level, even, uh, although most of it does end up going through the state government to a certain extent. Um, so there's a massive amount of variation in yeah. uh, how voting happens. But a lot of districts have uh, now established early voting, which is a way to allow people who can't make it to the, the poll or just who are going to be busy because they have jobs. So, yeah, uh, early voting is becoming a thing. There's also absentee balloting that you can... If you qualify, you can mail in a, a ballot. And, and these are all things that have been established to reduce barriers to voting and to a certain extent have been pretty successful. Although, that said, we're still in a situation where we have, you know, 17% of the voting public potentially, you know, selecting selecting congressional seats. You know, in, in some countries, I, I should say that there's also the idea of compulsory voting. Yep, that's Australia. Which is sort of going around. Australia, does oh, that. Yeah? you have... Oh my federal God. or the the um, elections every four years you have to vote in it it's legally mandated. what happens if well, you it's don't a, it's a it's a pay a fine system right so you can like toss what is it a hundred bucks or something um which for some people is significant right so I, I was about to write it off as like oh you can just write a check to not vote for some people it's quite expensive um is this why people vote for like pigs and stuff as like a protest vote? well i can't i can't comment I on her um australian politicians like that but Wait, but you live they've right next some, to them. They've you made some know. dubious choices. That's <laughs> Canada, dude. Canada knows all about how everything works in America. They'll tell you left and right. Uh, you should know all about what's going on. In actually, this what you just mentioned actually brought me back to something that I thought of earlier. One thing that is coming up in New Zealand political discourse a lot, at least among my generation, who, like we were saying earlier, are feeling disenfranchised, not because they aren't able to access political rights but because they feel no no the system is not taking account of their interests in any particular meaningful way one thing that is being discussed casually i guess but i wouldn't be surprised if it enters the public discourse is the idea of adding a no confidence vote to electoral papers and i'm curious to know your thoughts on say on november 8th last year you had gone into a, a public voting booth and been given a choice of Hillary, Trump, or no confidence in any candidate, do you think that would have changed people's response? Because we talk about how people voted, you know, well, I don't like either of them, but I dislike one of them slightly less. Would that mindset be affected if you could say, I don't like either of them, and we should have a new election cycle? I think, in essence, people who just don't vote are casting the no confidence vote which but is they're not that's something... the problem they're but yeah that's not what he's they're saying. stepping out they're yeah. they're not being represented in the political system 
by not voting, and it's yeah. very easy to discount them and say, well, they should have voted. Yeah. If you could, if I, you don't want to vote, but you have the option to vote no confidence, that's an active yeah. statement of distaste for the the candidates on offer. I, I think that's a really interesting concept. And I know there are actually a couple countries that do it. Russia is the one that pops to my mind, and so that's not a great advertisement for mm-hmm. it. I, but I, I think... I think it's an interesting idea. I would be more on board if there was a consequence, you know, like yeah. if, uh, you know, the no confidence vote won 20% or more of the, the vote, you have to do it over again or <laughs> you have to... Well, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's not hard to work something like that something. into the system. I'm just... Yeah. Uh, in the American system, it would be. Um, the president has to... The new president has to take office... Um, you know, in January, right? Period. Like, it's not like a prime minister who can continue on. Uh, I, I would be interested in seeing the primary system adopt something like this, um, because I, I think uh, I, I'm not confident Trump would have won the Republican nomination if that clown car show, that the clown show of the nine Republicans running for president this year, uh they would have been voted off the island, I think. I don't think anybody was really wild about that crop. Um, in November, I would not have voted uh, no confidence because I don't need to like someone to recognize someone's competent for the position, and one of the two candidates was qualified to be president of the United States, and then there was the winner. To be fair, though, you're a relatively considerate voter, I'd imagine. There are probably plenty of people who are affected by their personal assessment of the candidate. Well, unfortunately or not, we have to work them into the system in some way. And I wonder whether a lot of people might have taken the no-confidence choice. The primaries is probably a good place to have it, you're right, because you can't organize another full-scale election that quickly necessarily. But I'm, I'm curious to know how you think that choice would affect the overall turnout and the play of the politics. I think we can only speculate, and that gets a little bit dangerous, because um, as much as we're educated, we may not be necessarily educated on this very specific uh, topic of, like, voter mood, in particular of, like, what were the, you know, like, do we have polls of the people who did not vote and what they were thinking and what they were feeling? Um, I'm just not certain. And I think turnout was actually f- not, I mean, my turnout for this election was not, 35 percent it was something like 60 percent is that right it wasn't terrible yeah and so like even if literally everyone who didn't vote then turned up and voted no confidence you still wouldn't have or sorry you could have never mind you could have a plurality of no confidence votes but i think it just would have been pretty unlikely um so here i am speculating but um voter turnout was a 20-year low in 2016 at what level? Uh, 55.4%. Oh, yeah. okay. So, yeah, that's not great. For a presidential no, for a presidential election, though. For, yeah. for a normal American election, that's spectacular. Yeah. Uh, right. 2008 had 63%. I, I want to hop back on my bandwagon a little bit. Because, yes, you could have had, had this no-confidence vote. What's the but why are we having that conversation? Yeah. The reason we're having that conversation is because the two choices people felt like they were stuck with were the two most unpopular candidates 
in American election history since we started polling for this stuff, right? The, their disfavorable ratings were higher than anyone else. Um, and I think that that is important, right? And that's what—that's one of the reasons, I know one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because that Trump had many fewer votes than Clinton, yet he won. I think another particular problem is like, even if Clinton had squeaked by with a victory, we still have the problem, we would still have the problem of like kind of mass discontent with um, a candidate that is like, very widely disliked nationally and and ferociously disliked by half the country. Yeah, um, we we would have, we, it, I, and I'm not making like a, an equivalent statement here, right? But we would still kind of have this legitimacy problem, and we'd still be thinking about reform. Right. Yeah, right. I, I'm reminded I, of this quote, and I posted it in the show notes I, with, and I'm not going to quote it at length, but I'm reminded of the comment by Hannah Arendt, who made this statement that one of the things behind the rise of totalitarianism in Europe in the 1930s was all these people who felt unrepresented by any of the parties because the parties were no longer representing their interests. And so there is a drift of people, a gradual building of people who just were unrepresented, had no real goals, had no real purpose, and just were looking for someone to stick it in the eye of the system somehow. And they ended up finding their way into fascist parties ultimately although some of them ended up as communists and you know creating problems that way and it's just one of the interesting things about having a no confidence option would be being able to have that sort of warning the canary in the coal mine for the political system just be like look out but then you know if you're actually paying attention i think the participation problem is already kind of that canary in the coal mine I'm going to get, yeah, I, to get back on my, like, bandwagon, or my horse here, I I do believe that even if we provided, you know, had compulsory voting or just made it easier to vote, let, let's say we made it easier to vote. Do I think that the voter turnout rate would go up dramatically? No, I don't, because most, most seats are safe and most people don't love their options. Um, if we force people to vote, would the voting rate go up? Yes. Would it increase the actual legitimacy I think it would fool a few, a few people into thinking that these elections, uh, that the legitimacy was higher, that the you know that there was more of a national consensus. Um, but I I don't think it would be reality because as, I think as long as people are looking at the polls and they're saying to themselves, my congressional district is probably one of the safe ones, where it just doesn't matter. Okay, the person that the such and such party chose is going to win. Um, and here are two presidential candidates that I really don't like. Uh, you know, I, I remember seeing a meme. It was 320 million people, and it came down. We we came down to these two, really. Um, you know, regardless of how you personally feel about Clinton or Trump, those are just the numbers. Um, I think that the any any sort of turnout reform that relies purely on trying to use some sort of force to boost people's numbers without actually boosting people's excitement um or their sense of being represented is gonna is gonna fall short um i think the reform has to drive much deeper than uh than simply looking at the numbers so in conclusion since reform is hard uh we're doomed democracy is failing (laughs) it's time to time to move to russia let's bring back the monarchy guys yeah 200 years i I think the slightly uh, happier way of doing it, or I think the slightly uh, more optimistic sense is that I do think we need to go through enough pain such that the burning platform is there. Uh, we're starting to go through that pain. 
Um, the burning platform has to be there, and there not has to be like enough need for change. Enough people have to be discontent, discontented um, enough to to tweak things up, um, and there has to be a clear, you know, like a clear something else for people to go to, right? So, like one of these reform memes needs to become dominant. It needs to be well spread. People need to understand it and get excited about one of them. Um, it needs to sort of emerge to the top. And when you have both those things, a need and a clear target, a clear thing that people can latch onto, um, there's a good chance it will happen. Um, and, and I think the reason we're all here, that we would agree, it needs to. There needs to be reform. Um, and hopefully this show can be a, a help of both building that need and helping people understand that they have alternatives. So, uh, gentlemen, do we have any final thoughts for the day? I don't know. I just increasingly am hearing uh, Yates is the second coming in my head and you know the center cannot hold to me we need the passionate intensity not to be in the worst but in the best of us we need candidates to come forward who are willing to fight for these reforms we need a passionate electorate willing to go to the polls to support these reforms Uh, otherwise uh, we're kind of getting to a, a, a crossroads, I think, in the United States. We started talking about how we've been downgraded from a full democracy to a flawed democracy, and uh, things don't correct themselves. And while we can, while we are a free people, with, we ultimately need to step up and uh, right the ship. I would agree with... Uh, oh, Dominic. Sorry, I'm the host. I should wait till last. <laughs> no, I agree. I think looking outside, it seems like there are certain cracks in the US political system that are building towards a crisis point and will ha- they'll make themselves so apparent that it has to be dealt with. The question is whether those cracks, that crisis takes five years to play out, one year, ten years is beyond my ability to foresee, but... I think you're right that in terms of what you're seeing in US and parts of uh, the European democracies as well is a very tense um, fluctuation in the system and addressing that is going to require passion to some degree of idealism to even think that you can necessarily reform the system wholly but it has to be done and hopefully it will be done with a minimum of bloodshed which is something you actually have to wonder about in political reform you know this is something that does have to be taken into account yeah i guess the last thing i'll add is dominic's point about the european systems is a great one i know we're focusing on the united states and we have a very unique system compared to most european systems but we have to recognize that to some extent some of these cracks are starting to form elsewhere as well and so if we're talking about systemic change as a solution to as a as a partial solution to some of our problems because obviously some of it needs to be cultural as well it needs to be something about the United States people that changes um, and how we, you know, what our attitude is towards our politics. Um, but as we're looking to alternative systems, we must be very wary about jumping on, jumping too quickly on a system um, that isn't like ours because those systems may also be flawed, right? We can't just kind of look to the next best, the next thing and say, this this will be it. Um, you know, obviously France, Britain, um, to some extent, Germany is seeing a rise in its far right, and its center is also starting to face pressure. 
Um, so I think it's going to take a lot of work to figure out for not just the United States, but for Western democracies as a whole, what is going to be the system that can weather the storm that we are kind of collectively going through. Um, and that diversity of thought, I think, is just going to be really important. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming. This has been a really great discussion. Um, I don't really have anything to add in terms of final thoughts. You guys really did a great job of covering everything. Um, and uh, so I'm just going to thank everybody for coming. Uh, Dominic, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Eric, thanks for coming. Thank you. Dominic, your homework uh, is to tell us in more words why this New Zealand system is so great and how we can be more like you. <laughs> You'd be surprised how often I get asked that. I should uh, I should leave time for uh, plugs, uh, Dominic, if you want to add plugs to your, for your show. Um, if you want to learn about an authoritarian political system with absolutely no voting whatsoever, check out the History of Egypt podcast, because pharaohs were not at all conducive to what we are doing now. <laughs> Eric? Uh, for those of you really interested in reforming the United States system, both from a cultural and a structural perspective, Reconsider is the place for you. We are politics, but we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, for those of you guys who are really looking to make a step forward rather than just kind of dig deeper into, you know, a partisan tribe and uh, just keep screaming and, and saying that you're right and everyone else is wrong, um, we're a really great community. We do a ton of research and, uh, ho you know, hopefully we can help you navigate these, like, you know, very turbulent political waters um, with, a, you know, with your head on straight. And we really hope you'll join us in, you know, trying to help the country move forward. Tom, thanks for being here. And thank you for organizing this, by the way. This is uh, a lot of work, and you should be applauded for doing all this. Yep, A+. Plus. I just wish I could have said more. <laughs> Sometimes those uh, who say the very least much, say the most. Mm. <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. Um, and if anyone wants to hear more from me in my, uh, in my golden baritone that I normally have, um, you can check out my podcast, American Biography. I, I actually discuss uh, a lot of what we talked about today, um, the election of 1800, uh, the Constitutional Convention. I'm currently doing the, the life of John Marshall, fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he was a major player throughout the, the early decades of the American Republic when a lot of uh, the foundation that is possibly showing some cracks now was laid down. I'd like to thank uh, Royfield. Uh, th thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me be a Brit, throwing the odd brick into the uh, uh, into the American glass window that is your constitution and um, your look at American political reform. And I myself am Benjamin Jacobs. My podcast is called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. And... Uh, it's a good show to listen to if you want to learn how this whole Western society that's the basis of uh, all this democracy and state centralization that we're ultimately talking about, how it was built up and formed from a historical narrative perspective. Just again, thank you gentlemen for being part of this and thank you listeners for listening to all this. <laughs>
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.